This program is funded through a more perfect union initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Today we have Dr. Kyle T. Mays, Assistant Professor of African American Studies, American Indian Studies, and History at UCLA to explore an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States. Thank you uh, for the introduction, Doug. I really appreciated it. Uh, glad to be here with you all virtually. And I am the author of an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States. I am from the, uh, the state of Michigan. And I am African-American in Saginaw Chippewa. Saginaw Chippewa is a tribe in uh, sort of the middle of Michigan. And uh, so today I'm going to go ahead and begin. So one of the first questions we can really explore is what, in fact, is uh, Afro-Indigenous history or uh, for the academic audience, and sorry for the term, what is the relation between Blackness and indigeneity here in the U.S. in particular? I might have a particular focus on the Black and Red Power movements, really between the time from roughly 1966 to about 1978, focusing on uh, issues around ideology and practice, and thinking about connections, especially between uh, African-Americans and indigenous peoples, and what I like to say, the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy. And also I have a little bit of popular culture in there. So the person uh, to the left here is my great grandmother, Esther Shabus Mays, or her, her uh, indigenous name, Kadnoque. Now she came to the city of Detroit in 1940, and shortly thereafter, she married an African-American man, and she became a well-respected elder in the city of Detroit, uh, and they had nine Afro-Indigenous children who are my uh, aunties and uncles, and uh, she was deeply uh, committed to the education and the cultural uh, component of learning for, for children especially. Her home was always open. Uh, for indigenous children in the city of Detroit. And mind you, this is a city of Detroit, uh, especially the major year that she was active in the aftermath of the 1967 uh, rebellion, the most expensive in US history, one of the most destructive, and it uh, changed the city forever. But as a side note, it wasn't that, um, that, that was not what caused a largely <clears throat> excuse me, business class and white residents to leave. They had been leaving at least since the 1940s. It's a major misnomer that the rebellion caused all these people to leave. They had been leaving uh, for way before that businesses as well. And my great grandma, I like to call her an urban indigenous feminist. And what that means is an indigenous woman who's deeply dedicated to an indigenous uh, future for youth, for everyone, uh, utilizing feminism specifically within the urban context. So in the post-World War II era, you had many uh, Native people moving to urban areas such as Detroit, such as Chicago, such as Los Angeles, New York, and so forth. Uh, but we often think of Native people as living in, in on reservations, but in fact, at least since um, uh, 1990, and certainly before then, the majority of Native people have actually lived in urban areas, right? 
and I haven't seen the 2020 uh, 20 census numbers yet, but it was close to around 78%. So close to 80% of Native people live in some urban context. Uh, and as I mentioned, her children were raised uh, in the heart of black and red power, activism, radicalism, and so forth. So for context, Detroit is really a hub in the US for black power, uh, radicalism, and activism. So whether that was uh, Grace and James Lee Boggs in the 1960s uh, and the Republic of New Africa, who I'll mention a little bit later, Malcolm X gave some of his most infamous speeches there. Uh, so Detroit is really a hub for black nationalism, radicalism, and so forth. And this particular etching here is my Aunt Judy Mays at the podium. And she founded what was the third ever public school created with the Native American curriculum called Medicine Bear American Indian Academy. Now, the importance of this school was it was created in the 90s, right after, or at least uh, during the uh, crack epidemic in Detroit, massive poverty and so forth. But she thought indigenous peoples had a future even in a majority black city in the city of Detroit. So she founded this school um, and it was an important opportunity. So now I meet artists, activists and so forth who are very much dedicated to understanding and remembering her particular legacy in Detroit. So, uh, there's a fancy term often used called settler colonialism. And let me break this down for you. Settler colonialism is simply this. It is a non-indigenous population coming to a particular land, taking over that land through various means. So it could be genocide, it could be biological warfare. It could be uh, various sorts of wars, uh, the signing of treaties, coercion, all these things lead to a settler colony. And the important thing here is that the settlers don't come just to exploit. So we'll say classic colonialism where people might live elsewhere. You know, say uh, you're in Belgium and you have the Belgium Congo or whatever, right? And all of the resources you're extracting go back to the home country. Settler colonialism is different than the fact that those people are there to stay and are actively, uh, and the population grows, and they do things. So think about uh, for Gen X or millennials, think about what you learned in high school about indigenous nations in your particular area, or what you did not learn, right? I'm assuming the majority did not learn a whole lot about native histories uh, outside of early US history, perhaps. Now, if that's the case, that is also a product of settler colonialism. So there's no need to feel guilty about what you did not learn. The point is that settler colonialism is meant to continue to occupy and take land from indigenous peoples. Right, this has contemporary consequences today. For example, uh, when I talk about colonialism or dispossession in urban areas where uh, people, I live in Los Angeles, where people are unhoused, where uh, rent prices and the inability to own homes are so uh, sky high that people can no longer afford to live. When the police actively try to uh, remove certain populations as well, these are various forms of displacement and dislocation um, and leaving people really without refuge or without, without housing. Uh, and the other one, of course, is the issue of mass incarceration. 
Now think about what's, what is the point of a prison? Now we might think that it's for punishment or rehabilitation and many of the studies historically today suggest otherwise. That's not really how that works. And often the point is to segregate people and exploit them. But to me, these are very much logics of settler colonialism. So let's jump right into the Black and Red Power Movement, which I have here with the uh, slash impossibilities under colonialism. So uh, I think we might often think that Black and Native people are natural allies. And I will end discussing that more in depth, but not always the case, even during this particular moment. There were moments which I'll get into, but many Native people likely felt the way that Vine Deloria Jr., who wrote this originally in 1978, republished in 2000, and minority groups are often astounded to learn that the Indians were not planning to share the continent with their oppressed brothers once the revolution was over. Hell no. The Indians were planning on taking the continent back and kicking out all the black Chicano, Anglo, and Asian brothers that made the whole thing possible. Now, this isn't as anti-other as it might seem, but it does, in fact, center that the U.S. was native land and native peoples are tired of being ignored in the pantheon of the discussions around civil rights, around uh, Asian American rights, around gay and lesbian rights uh, at the time, and so forth. They wanted to make sure that uh, centering indigenous peoples and return of land was central to their understanding of power and justice. But that wasn't really the case in a very mainstream sense, with a few exceptions. This is not one of them. So this is um, the Republic of New Africa founded in Detroit in May of uh, 1968. Uh, Henry Milton and his brother, uh, who changed their name, last name to Obadeli. And they formed this group with what they call the Malcolm X Doctrine, and that is the belief in black nationalism and uh, owning land. Now, they base a lot of this on what had happened to the Cherokee Nation and the rest of the uh, five tribes when they were removed from the southern states. Now, they wanted the five southern uh, states for compensation for slavery. So there's a lot of discussion today around reparations, which I'll get into a little bit later. Right now, the key question here is that it's a contradiction, of course. How can we talk about returning uh, this land or, or black people occupying that land without also thinking about returning land to indigenous peoples? It's a historical question that they never uh, engage with directly even though they were aware of that history, but they wanted this for compensation for exploitation under uh, slavery. But it is something to really, really consider. Now, um, another thing that Deloria uh, two slides ago was essentially said in his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, um, an Indian Manifesto, published in 1969, was that Black and Native uh, struggles specifically for the Black and Native Power movements had very little in common. And I think there's something to that, but it's something also to consider. So what is Red Power essentially? The critique of the U.S. nation state for not honoring the treaties. They wanted, again, the U.S. to honor the treaties, and the United States had violated every treaty they ever made of Native nation. The whole notion of indigenous sovereignty and this is a legal uh, term as well, something that Native nations and peoples have other 
other minoritized, oppressed, and racialized groups in the United States is that they have a treaty relationship with the United States government, what the United States is supposed to honor. They were, uh, during this time, reclaiming and asserting indigenous cultures. And if we're talking about uh, re reclaiming land values, in some ways it's anti-capitalist in, in, in some ways. Now, black power, there's some shared values here. So black self-determination, a critique of US democracy, uh, also just like native peoples asserting a black nationalist uh, culture and aesthetic. So whether that's uh, black power fist, whether that's the uh, iconic Afro of Angela Davis and others. And for many of the groups, these things are uh, anti-capitalist as well. Uh, two groups in particular, to focus on here are the Black Panther Party founded in 1966 and the American Indian Movement in 1968. Now the Panthers were founded as a, re a response to police brutality in Oakland, California and in um, Twin Cities in um, St. Paul, Minnesota and Minneapolis, Minnesota. They founded in 1968 for exactly the same reason, but they had seen what the Panthers had done, the attention they had garnered and the media and thought this is a great way, but it, it more slightly and for black the Black Panther Party into more international realms and more uh, issues of solidarity and for the American Indian movement focusing specifically on treaties and stopping the uh, violation and the eradication of native peoples. And Many of those histories are taught are very, uh, we'll say, male dominated. But we have to consider the role that many black and indigenous women played. So, I'll start with Asada Shakur, who is still uh, in Cuba at the moment. But in a particular essay she wrote to my people, said they call us thieves that we did not rob and murder millions of Indians that are ripping off their homeland and then call ourselves pioneers. Right. This is another example of rhetoric of settler colonialism that uh, Asada Shakur, the godmother of the late rapper Tupac Shakur, who which he is actually challenging. Right. We might often think about these things without little consequence, but they ha certainly have an impact. Uh, the other thing is Women of All Red Nations. So Women of All Red Nations was founded uh, in South Dakota in 1978. Uh, their first meeting had over 200 women there. And they focused at least on a few things, environmental racism and reproductive rights for Native women. There are reports that anywhere between 42 to perhaps as high as uh, over 60% of Native women in this uh, era in the 1970s had experienced um, forced sterilization. And they were really uh, one of the first groups to bring this to attention, at least as it relates to Native women. And so they say Indian women have always been in the front lines and the difference in the defense of our nations. Only by throwing off the yoke of colonization with the strength of our spirituality will we survive as people's nations. Right. And they also tried to uh, get a wide variety of forms of solidarity with lots of different groups. Now, someone um, who is very active in in good relations with Native peoples was Stokely Carmichael. So in a talk he gave called The Red and the Black, um, 
in Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minnesota, they were fundraising for the defense of Dennis Banks and others. That all of us must struggle against capitalism. The red man is struggling against capitalism. He has been a vicious victim of capitalism. It is on his land that the most powerful imperial system has been built at its very expense. All right, so Stokely is putting this out there. And there are many African-Americans deeply engaged in acts of solidarity. So Angela Davis, um, who is still in the struggle, was one of them. So she went to Wounded Knee in 1973. And I always tell young activists um, this part, that often it's about showing up for people, right? And you need a lot of coalitions with people to create change. And while she was not able to actually uh, go into past the barricade, her act of showing up is important and demonstrates, at least symbolically, forms of hope and solidarity between Black and Native peoples. And here she is in Detroit in 1974 at the National Alliance to End Repression. And to her left, uh, speaking at Cobo Hall, to her left is Clyde Belcourt, a co-founder of the um, American Indian Movement. Now, these acts of solidarity are symbolic in some ways, but very important, right? They're very important. Now, back to uh, Stokely, again, who had changed his name to Kwame Ture. He was perhaps one of the only uh, people that acknowledged that, this, that the U.S. was indigenous land, right? And he and the Black Panther Party, the Black Panther Party would document all of the actions of the American Indian Movement uh, within their particular newspaper. So Ture says, anybody who thinks seriously about working on behalf of the red man must deal with this truth, the land on which we live and on which we inhabit, which we exploit, that land belongs to the red man. He must come first in any dealings with the land. Now this is a powerful statement that I haven't found very, I haven't found any other uh, African-American radical during the time making such a proclamation. And here, uh, at least from the late 1970s to the 1980s, you have here the first uh, annual International Indian Treaty Council on the White Earth Reservation. And uh, this is right after the 1977 Geneva Conference uh, at the United Nations when you had a lot of Native activists there proclaiming that uh, their treaty should be honored, they need more protection for water rights, um, and a return of land, right? And acknowledging that indigenous peoples uh, exist within the international structure. And you also have an African-American man here, uh, Bob Brown, who's very much invested uh, in Native struggles and continues to do so today. And he was a representative of the All African Revolutionary People's Party, founded by uh, um, Kwame Nkrumah and really advocated for by Kwame Ture, and Kwame Nkrumah being the uh, president of uh, of Ghana at the time. Now let's shift into popular culture. Popular culture is a significant part of uh, transformation and how people actually understand it, especially for young people. And by popular culture, I mean as broadly as so music. Uh, film, art, television, and so forth. Social media, we might consider a form of popular culture, TikTok, and all these uh, ways in which we will produce culture. 
So in particular, uh, for here, I want to focus on indigenous popular culture. So it's a symbol, signs, and meanings produced by indigenous peoples to tell stories about their lives, right? So it could be about the past, it could be about relationships, it could be about uh, their experience on the res or the city. These are all the various forms of uh, indigenous popular culture produced within the context of a settler colonial capitalist uh, society. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And it demonstrates indigenous people's uh, modernity or their desire to be seen as people of the future. So one of the things about that indigenous uh, creatives have to respond to is always being considered people of the past and always being asked to produce things that fit the palette of colonial desires about what art is supposed to be, what indigenous art is supposed to be. And it can be a challenge for many of them. So again, what are the, these modes of popular culture? Aesthetics, visual art, writing, social media, memes, music, dance, film, and various forms of media, right? Those things that I mentioned before. But again, it's about futurisms. So coined by Anishinaabe scholar Grace Dillon, she says indigenous futurism is a growing movement, but not limited to Indian country, where native peoples dare to reimagine societal tropes, alternative histories and futures through the exploration of science fiction and subgenres. It consists here of comics, fine arts, literature, games, and various other forms of media. And I ask this uh, particular question here to consider for everyone, but just imagine and think about how many just well-known, famous indigenous people do you know? And I'll pause here just to think about it. Right? And, and, and just come up with 10. If I ask you, name me 10 just famous African-American artists, I'm sure you could do that pretty easily. But this also, again, is a function of settler colonialism. That it, it's just something you just, you don't, you don't really know. And the importance of indigenous uh, popular culture here is to produce three-dimensional um, views of native peoples, that we're not people simply of the past, but we exist in the present and will continue to exist in the future. So the importance of indigenous representation. Nearly half of Americans say that what they were taught in schools is inaccurate. So this is a study from Illuminatives. And 72% believe significant changes to the school, school curriculums are needed, right? Now uh, we can go to the example most recently um, of the Washington football team who are now the Washington Commanders, right? And so what forced them to change their name? Obviously, Native people have been resisting, protesting for them to change a racist uh, name and emblem on the NFL team. Same thing with the now um, uh, Cleveland Guardians, uh, formerly the Cleveland Indians and their chief Wahoo. They finally changed it, and it was a combination of Native activism bringing awareness for this for decades and, of course, the murder of George Floyd. And companies are pledging uh, millions of dollars 
to protest uh, systemic racism, and yet you still have racist mascots, which is a huge contradiction. I'll never forget watching, um, I believe the Kansas City football team. They had any racism in the end zone, and people caught on to that, and yet they still had the, the name, the Kansas City Chiefs, and if you look into the crowd, all sorts of racial stereotypes about Native peoples. So it's just a huge contradiction. Um, and representation uh, has its place in social transformation. Don't forget to come back next week for even more context on the Afro-Indigenous history of the United States.